Welcome to the ETAP Podcast, a service of the American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials. Each month, we'll provide information and insight into environmental issues important to state transportation officials. Welcome, I'm your host, Bernie Wagenblast. From Washington, D.C. to Detroit to Silicon Valley, industry leaders are investing in electric vehicle infrastructure and committing to carbon reduction goals. On the campaign trail, President Biden promised to build 500,000 electric vehicle charging stations across the country. At the same time, more and more automakers are rolling out electric vehicle options, and several states have announced ambitious climate action goals with respect to the transportation industry. In Colorado, for example, Governor Jared Polis has committed to transitioning his state to 100% clean energy by 2040. He also signed an executive order to move the state to zero-emission vehicle standards and increase adoption of electric vehicles. State departments of transportation will play a critical role in fulfilling these promises. Shoshana Liu, the executive director of Colorado DOT, is leading the march toward a greener future for the state's drivers and riders. Director Liu joins us today on the podcast to discuss how Colorado is ramping up its efforts to promote electric vehicles and provide the infrastructure necessary for the future of transportation. Director Liu, welcome to the Ashto ETAP podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. If you would, tell us a bit about your work as well as your background and what brought you to CDOT. Sure. Well, uh, other other than the mountains and the most spectacularly beautiful highway system in the country, um, <laughs> You know, my, my career has been sort of at the nexus of finance and infrastructure issues, you know, with a sort of heavy overlay of thinking through the kind of future of sustainability and the environmental aspects that go into sort of designing for the future. You know, I was uh, in, my, in my federal service uh, prior to moving out here, you know, I spent eight years in the Obama administration you know, in a number of capacities that kind of culminated as the chief financial officer of the U.S. Department of Transportation, you know, which is a really remarkable vantage point to sort of see how all of the transportation programs come together and interface and how the sort of dollars that we pay into the system result in kind of Im- impacts for people that make our, um, you know, make, make our system better from kind of the human facing element. And, the, you know, the thesis statement of a lot of the work that I've done is that, you know, we, we need to talk about not just how we pay for it, but what are we paying for and for whom does it deliver and making sure that the investments we make in infrastructure, which are of, you know, sums that far exceed, you know, what day-to-day people see in their lifetime oftentimes, you know, really translate into you know, very direct results that impact the economy at a macro scale, but also people's day-to-day lives. I mean, I think that one of the things that's sort of unique about working in the infrastructure space relative to other aspects of sort of economic policy is that the the benefits are not intangible, right? I mean, you you know, you can and should explain to your neighbor the meaning of the work that you do and why it matters in their life. And, uh, you know, it uh, it is sure the case that we hear from, you know, our constituents day to day about the, you know, challenges that they face due to their transportation system. So I think that kind of nexus point between the very tangible um, and and the kind of abstract concepts that go into sort of thinking through the macro implications is something that's really unique in the transportation space and something that I find very rewarding about it because you're never too far from what makes it real. Tax policy, you can get a little bit uh, lost in the abstraction sometimes. It's harder to do that when the implications of what you're doing affect people every day. Moving to the state level from the federal level, and after the Obama administration, I spent a couple of years in Rhode Island as the chief operating officer of their transportation department, working closely with another ASHTO member, Peter Elvini, 
and then moved here as the executive director, you know, it really gets you into another level of sort of depth and detail in terms of being able to get at the real projects, right? You know, I, I love my federal service, but you don't deal with a whole lot of real projects from the federal level. It's more of the sort of programmatic oversight. And here, you know, what we do every day is plan those projects and, uh, you know, you, you get to actually spend the money. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, you know, and you get to talk to people about their priorities for it. I mean, I think one of the most rewarding things I've had the opportunity to do in Colorado is the sort of listening tour uh, that we did leading up to our 10-year plan, you know, when the governor uh, first started his uh, his term here. And it was really the first big initiative that we did in my time at CDOT. Well, we went to all 64 counties in the state, you know, between me and my senior team. And, you know, we just talked to people about what they thought the problems were. And, you know, you kind of mesh that up with the data that comes from the experts and, you know, thinking about sort of the people who build it and the users and how those work together. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very rewarding to start seeing that come to fruition. One of the things we're going to be talking about quite a bit in this particular podcast is electrifying the transportation system. There was a recent report from the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy, and in that report, Colorado was ranked among the top 10 states for policy and program efforts to electrify transportation. If you would, Shoshana, tell us a bit about your approach to successfully supporting electrical vehicle infrastructure and why it's a top priority for Colorado. Sure. And this is something that we are hugely focused on right now, as many are, because it's kind of the moment for it. You know, I've, I've been working in the space of sort of efficiency and fuel efficient vehicles for most of my career. And, you know, I remember 10 years ago when we were working on kind of implementation of fuel economy standards, it was not the dialogue was not about electric vehicles in the way that it is now, in part because the market wasn't there. And, you know, I think what you've seen in the last five years or so is the beginning of a tipping point that's happening. Right. You know, you don't have General Motors announcing that uh, they're shifting their whole fleet towards electrification by 2035 if it isn't real. You know, that, that, that that's just not how these, uh, these these big companies work. So, you know, I think the way the way that the dynamic kind of plays out when you're in the incubation stage of a new set of technologies, which is where we were 10, 15 years ago with this versus now when we're kind of at that cusp of a transition makes the challenges very different. One of the things that was a focus for us when we, again, at the start of this administration was you know, myself and my colleague, Will Tor, who runs our energy office, spent a good part of the first six months or so of the, our, our time in our roles you know, working with the auto industry to develop what was the country's first ever sort of consensus zero emission vehicle program. Colorado was the first state in over a decade to adopt zero emission vehicle standards, and we did it you know, for the first time with consensus from about 99% of the industry. I mean, the two major associations with the backing of their membership, you know, endorsed the role that ended up being adopted by Colorado. And this is in part because we were able to sort of take a uniquely collaborative approach, but it was also because of where the market was, right? I mean, that, that wouldn't have happened 10 years ago because the technology wasn't there to kind of make it clear why the return on investment you know, was was so sort of established from their perspective to be you know in a different space about these policies that advance zero emission vehicle technology. You know, for us, that was about making sure that Coloradans get the benefit of the same consumer choice that folks across the country do. I mean, what one one of the interesting things about that program is the companies choose where to prioritize their product based to some level on which states they get the credit for doing it in Mars. So, you know, to give an example, you know, Subaru, which is probably the an unofficial official state car for an awful lot of the, our, our, our mountain drivers here, you know, did not choose to place their initial electric vehicle stock in Colorado. And, you know, that, 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 for, that for us was just a conundrum because, you know, w- w- why shouldn't the drivers here have the same choices and the same options that 
drivers in California or, you know, New York or New Jersey would. So, you know, for us, making sure that Colorado is a leader in the space is as much as anything about making sure that drivers here have, you know, have the creme de la creme of the options that are available to drivers elsewhere in the country. But, you know, in order in order to be able to kind of host those sets of policies, we need to have an ecosystem that makes it possible to drive, right? I mean, the, the highway system in Colorado is vast, especially to get to the places that people love. You know, you're often driving hundreds of miles, right? It's 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 not it's not like Rhode Island where uh, you know I, I used to drive ten miles from my house when I was in Massachusetts. You, you know, you can drive uh, you know a whole day here and still be in Colorado and to get to the places where folks recreate. You know, increasingly, and we've seen this during the pandemic that you know the the appeal of going to the farther out places in the state has only intensified. You know, for electric vehicles to work in those places, you need, you know, a network of charging that allows people to have the certainty that they're going to be able to get there and that they're not going to have to wait hours and hours to charge en route. So building out that infrastructure network as the market is electrifying and as the vehicle fleet is turning over is something that has to happen now. That's an area where, you know, in all of our conversations about sort of transportation funding and priorities, thinking through how we build out the infrastructure side of electrification is something that's very timely for us. Um, you know, we're making progress in real time. There's a, you know, a, a neat announcement, not so much in uh, in my domain as my colleagues at the Department of Natural Resources that they're, they've entered into a partnership uh, with Rivian to put charging at all of our state parks. And, you know, that that's exactly the kind of thing we need. And, you know, we're working on, um, on, ha- on having that at different points in the highway system as well places where you would stop along the way or some of the towns and having a pretty robust program of being able to get from point A to point B with an electric vehicle. So, you know, th- those are just some of the examples that have to kind of come together. And, you know, I-, I-, I think for this transition to happen, we can't underestimate what a big deal it is economically and, you know, in terms of the sort of way, way that people treat mobility. And, Treating it as a comprehensive set of changes that requires you know, a lot of different pieces coming together in a sort of thoughtfully holistic manner is something that we're very focused on. You know, we have a lot of different state agencies bringing bringing their uh, wherewithal to bear in being a part of that conversation, and it's not the kind of thing that you can just do at a DOT or an energy office or you know, an environmental office or you know the, the folks who run the parks. You need everybody thinking about how the different pieces together. You certainly touched on that, talking about the Energy Office and the Parks Department. Obviously, the DOT cannot do this all by themselves. Are there others that are also involved in trying to make this happen? And and what is their involvement? Well, there's a huge role for the private sector um, and, and, and for the sort of world of public utilities. I mean, I think one of the things that makes Colorado very interesting in the electrification conversation is how much progress we're making um, in turning over the shape of the electricity providers, right? I mean, you know, for, for electric vehicles to accrue the benefits that everyone wants them to achieve, you need to be drawing from clean power. And Colorado is, you know, I, I think, at the very, very top of the list in terms of places where we're seeing the major utilities across the state, you know, with commitments to having the vast majority of their power come from clean sources you know, in the very nearly foreseeable future. So having that, you know, the the power side uh, support the ability to have these clean vehicles run is probably the sort of first space where you need to have the prerequisite work accomplished. And that, you know, is very reliant on a partnership between government and the utilities across the state. And, you know, you're seeing virtually all of our major utilities kind of going above and beyond in this respect. And there have been an, a number of announcements in the last couple of months about the sort of quick turnover to clean power, you know, with the with the leadership of utilities like Excel Energy, which serves the Denver area, but really 
a whole host of the utilities across the state. You know, you also need the car companies to work with you, right? And part of the reason that we took a collaborative approach working with the auto manufacturers is that you you can't turn over the fleet without the cars being available. And ha- having that dialogue between government and industry in terms of wh- when, the, when the actual uh, rolling stock will come off the line and how it will get from the places where it's manufactured to dealerships in Colorado is a very complicated problem that we need to think through. And the network of dealerships is not going to be able to stay static and have this work either. And, you know, there's been an interesting shift in that respect, too. And I will say that the auto manufacturers were quite supportive of our zero emission vehicle policy and sort of saw it as a national motto. The dealers were not. Initially, the the sort of network that represents Colorado's dealerships um, sued us on the rule. And in, in just the last weeks, they called us and let us know that they were going to be dropping their litigation against that rule, which uh, I think is... Uh, yet another indication of how far the market is coming, you know, because they know that their future is in figuring out how to work with this. And, you know, I think get, getting from the space where it's sort of advocates kind of pursuing electrification to practitioners is an interesting transition that needs to happen to go from, you know, being one, two, three percent of vehicles on the road to, you know, 80, 90, 100. And, you know, that, that requires working with everybody in the supply chain, you know, whether or not they started from the same place in terms of their views on this. You talk about fleet turnover, and obviously having enough vehicles available is a big part of making this work. I'm curious, Colorado DOT, I'm sure, has a a fairly big fleet of its own. Have you been able to make any progress with electrifying some of the vehicles that CDOT uses? We sure have. I think, uh, Matt can correct me if I'm wrong here, I think we're the number one state agency in terms of integrating uh, electric vehicles into our own fleet. We're an interesting use case because of the needs of the vehicles that see that, right? I mean, we have a light duty fleet, we have a medium duty fleet, we have a heavy duty fleet. I will say that our snow plows will probably be the last to electrify. <laughs> you know, but that said, the, the vehicles that we drive around, everything from business meetings to even visiting project sites, we're rapidly having more options. You know, we have a number of uh, Chevy Bolts in the fleet that were some of the earliest fully electric vehicles, and those are great for city driving. We're eagerly awaiting uh, four-wheel drive electric vehicles here in Colorado because of the nature of what our roads are like, especially in the winter. You know, as those become available, we're integrating those into the fleet too. So, you know, just in the past months, we've acquired a number of uh, sort of four-wheel drive crossovers uh, that are plug-in hybrid electric so that we can start to integrate those. And as more options become available in that space from the major manufacturers, it will enable us to turn over more of our fleet. But we're very committed to being the top of the list in that regard. And the state in general, I mean, the governor has really made a hard push for state agencies to lead by example. The most challenging spaces to electrify are when you need to drive 300 miles, right? That's not what's happening on a construction project. You know, you're generally kind of driving from one end to the other. You know, there's a fair amount of idling, unfortunately. And there's sort of a need to, you know, move heavy things short distances. Those could be perfect applications for the fully electric pickup trucks as they start to come around. So, you know, I think we're, we're very excited about it. Our, you know, our, our, our maintenance division that runs the fleet program at CDOT is uh, keeping their eye on all these products. And, you know, we even have a few um, experimental larger work trucks that are, are at least partially electrified in our fleet to be able to start to test the w- limits of these use cases. So it's something, it's something we're leading by example as part of our commitment. Obviously, there are a lot of pluses with electric vehicles, but one of the concerns with electric vehicles comes to financing as far as 
raising money through the gas tax. I think all states get a good deal of their funding from gas taxes. Obviously, as more of the fleet becomes electrified, you have fewer and fewer vehicles that are paying for the roads in terms of a gas tax. Some states, many states, in fact, have an annual fee for electric vehicles. I think Colorado's currently charging $50 annually for electric vehicles. That's kind of the low end compared to some of the other states that are also charging. What are some of the activities that you're supporting with that fee? And a a second part of that, how do you plan to offset the long-term revenue losses from gas taxes in the future as more and more people turn to electric vehicles? Unfortunately, not uh, multivariable calculus that there is a revenue problem in the horizon for transportation, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's a good problem to have that the cause of the revenue issue is the cars are getting cleaner. But nonetheless, you know, we've seen the erosion of the gas tax due to cars being more fuel efficient, as well, as well as due to not keeping up with inflation in most of the country, including with the national gas tax. But figuring out how you sort of shift from a petroleum-based model to Vehicles running off of electricity absolutely will necessitate changes to the revenue source. You know, our current state electric vehicle fee goes to a sort of mix of paying into the Highway User Trust Fund and paying into a program that supports public vehicle charging. And there's actually a live conversation going on in our legislature right now. Um, the details of the sort of initial foray to that proposal were just put out publicly last week. We're one of the components of that package, which is about the future of transportation revenue and spending is about modernizing the revenue collection from electric vehicles over time so that, you know, particularly when we get to that breaking point where the sort of preponderance of the fleet turns over, you know, we've solved the problem ahead of time, right? It, it's it's going to be a lot easier to solve that problem before it affects the majority of vehicles than after. So, you know, what this proposal from our legislators would do is kind of over time, get the electric vehicle fee up to par with the what an average vehicle pays in the gas tax, um, it wouldn't phase it all at once, but we also don't need it all at once, right? The, the real problem is not now, it's 10 years from now. So, you know, the, the, the idea would be that as as the fleet transitions, that parity is created so that, you know, when, when you hit the breaking point, the problem is solved ahead of time. You know, I think there's other aspects of changing needs in transportation revenue and use too, right? I mean, one of the other things that's contemplated in the package that's being discussed here is fees on services like mobility platforms like Uber and Lyft. Thinking through the sort of implications of the vast and swift shift to retail being more online than in brick and mortar stores, all of those things sort of trickle down into implications for the roads and sort of thinking through how they function as part of the transportation user base is probably a conversation that many people are going to need to have moving forward. We're excited to see where this goes in Colorado, and I think we're kind of a step ahead of the national dialogue where these kinds of changes are going to have to be dealt with sooner or later. You mentioned in passing plug-in hybrids. I'm curious, do you see that as an incremental step to full electrification that people are going to maybe get around some of their range anxiety and things of that sort by having vehicles where, well, okay, if I run out of electric power, at least I know that I've got gasoline to get me to that next charging station. So for for fear of geeking out on car technology for a moment, <laughs> I will do just that. Um, you know, th- there's an interesting dynamic in the kind of investments that go into different kinds of vehicle platforms. So you know, the, if you're if you're a car company, the investments you make to go to a hybrid, a plug-in hybrid, and a full-on electric are somewhat different and somewhat in conflict with one another. So there's interesting choices going on on the market side about how many of their sort of eggs to put in different baskets, so to speak. You see different companies having made different choices 
I would hasten to say that some of their views on future regulations relate to the choices they've made over the last 10 or 20 years. I mean, General Motors put a lot of their wherewithal into developing fully electric models from the outset. Their gas cars are not the most fuel efficient on the market, but you know they put a lot of uh, emphasis and research and development and money into developing platforms like the Bolt and you know the ones that they have moving forward. So you know it's not a surprise if you look at the history of where their focus has been that they're kind of laser focused on getting to the fully electric with the batteries to be able to do that. Toyota, who was a pioneer in the kind of initial hybrid market, you know has a very good product line that is a plug-in hybrid. I mean, interestingly, there are not enough of them. I mean, we've been having reports from across Colorado that there is demand for those uh, plug-in hybrid uh, crossovers, especially that like the dealers just can't get them. So, you know, I think at least for the immediate future, there's a lot of use cases for those plug-in hybrid models where if you do get stuck in the wilderness where there's one gas station, you have an option. But, you know, in some ways, there's fewer of those models being developed because so much of the R&D and a lot of the big companies has focused on the fully electric. And, you know, I think... If you look at the kind of um, sort of regulatory aspirations we're hearing from a lot of places in the world and, you know, places like California, you know, the focus is on getting to those fully um, electrified platforms eventually. But there is a you know, great deal of utility in the plug-in hybrids now. But, you know, I, I think a lot of this is going to be driven by the market and where the companies have their, have their sights set 10, 20 years out. Because ultimately, if what they're trying to get to is fully electric, there many of them are not going to bother to make the kinds of investments in plug-in hybrid because they're not the same investments. Obviously, talking about private vehicles or even fleet vehicles being electrified is part of the answer to cleaner transportation. But in a recent webinar presentation, you discussed the idea of addressing behavior change by increasing options for travelers across different transportation Mm -hmm. modes, those who maybe don't have access to a private vehicle. How have multimodal options played a role in CDOT's efforts to build a more energy efficient transportation system? Well, I think the reality is that there's, you know, there, there's no silver bullet in dealing with the emissions challenges associated with transportation, right? One of the reasons why it's such a hard sector to get your arms around is because it's not just a few users, right? When you're talking about clean power and utilities, you're dealing with a finite number of players, right? You know, they're big businesses and you sort of know who they are and how to regulate them. You know, when it comes to transportation, you know, the user base is the aggregate of millions of people's individual choices. So, you know, being able to impact holistic change when you're dealing with so many independent actors is very challenging and requires taking it from a lot of different angles. In some ways, shifting from conventional gas-powered vehicles to electric vehicles is one of the things that can be done in the shorter term, right? Because, you know, average owner keeps their car for you know, roughly 10 to 12 years and you, you sort of know that there's going to be generational turnover in cars on, on, on the decade or so. It takes a, a lot longer to implement some of the other changes, but you also need them. So thinking about the kind of you know land use patterns and what they mean for how many miles people have to drive is something that you know can take decades to influence. But you know ultimately, you know having 100% of the kind of current traffic shifting to electric still has a pretty heavy footprint, whether it's on air pollution or just traffic congestion. From our perspective, we're focused on taking it from a few different angles at once. You know, some of that is trying to think towards the really future-looking aspects, and some of it is figuring out what the things that you can do quickly and effectively are. And some of that is focusing on fleet turnover, and some of that is thinking about the kind of multimodal options that are, you know, I, I, I like to say the lower-hanging fruit, right? Because 
we're having lots of conversations about sort of a future rail system up and down our most populated corridor. You know, in the best case scenario, that takes a while and hefty deal of investment to build. So, you know, in the meantime, we're working to increase the quality of rapid bus service and the sort of infrastructure around it up and down I-25, which is our sort of big north-south artery. You know, that's something that we can do in a few years using the infrastructure we have to integrate it into the highway projects that we're building. And, you know, I think that that's, that's a space where as a DOT, we have a lot of optionality is to sort of think through what, you know, what's the infrastructure that we run and how can you use it to serve, you know, multiple different modes at once so that travelers have choices, right? You know, you're not taking the lane away from one form of transit if, uh, if, you, if you use it for another. So, for example, when we build out managed lanes, we typically look for ways to run buses in those managed lanes. So, you know, drive, drivers of in, in individual or business vehicles that need the efficiency have the choice of using that lane. But it's also because of the traffic management and the pricing around it. It's a sort of consistent, efficient route for, uh, for bus travel as well. So I think that those are the kinds of things that we're looking at here. You know, we're looking at different ways that we can use the space that we have to get people from point A to point B with more choices, you know, we're, we're, we're starting to look at a kind of mini transit solution along our mountain corridor. We're building, we're building peak period express lanes uh, to be able to manage some of the weekend traffic to the mountains. They've been very effective for cars. They're not quite big enough to run full buses. So the question is, what can you run in them? And one of the things we're talking about in real time is, you know, running sort of small micro transit in those lanes to be able to give people more choices and reduce traffic into the mountains. Colorado has clearly been a leader when it comes to the transition to clean transportation. I'm curious, though, part of what goes along with being a leader sometimes is you are the one to discover some of the problems. What have been some of the biggest challenges that you've come across, and how have you overcome those? The challenge writ large, not just for us, but for everyone, is that I don't think we can underestimate what a big change shifting to electric vehicles is for the economy, right? You know, from from the supply chain down to the users, down to the kind of changes in your day to day life that it creates. I mean, it, this is a very big change and one that needs to, you know, you, you can't just do overnight. And you know, I think that we're finding, you know, we're at the top of the list in terms of electric vehicle deployment, but it's still in the single digits to get from you know one, two, three, four, five percent again to 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 percent, you know, requires different uh, different kinds of investments and different kinds of readiness. So, you know, one of the things we're talking about right now is how you make much broader investments in that public charging to sort of round out the network so that wherever you are, you have the ability to get a charge and get where you're going. And, you know, that's going to take a big down payment to get there. You know, I think over time, it will probably segue into a model that has a mix of public and private investment in ownership and stewardship. But, you know, those things don't generally happen at that scale without making a decision. There's going to be a big public investment at the outset. Look, the interstate didn't happen without the decision that there was going to be a major publicly funded outlay. So, you know, I I think appreciating the magnitude of that change and the sort of upfront down payments that we have to make to get it off the ground is something we're going to have to do to get to the order of magnitude that's being talked about nationwide and globally. And, you know, we're we are in real time thinking through you know where those dollars come from. We're talking about state options. We're looking at what the federal government may do, and you know it's it's gonna it's gonna have to mean that that's a priority for the next few years. You know, I think on transit and clean transportation, you know, Colorado is an interesting space because it's not a state that's historically sort of wired around mass transit in the way that you know the places where I originally come from are right. You know, in in, in Washington D.C. where I grew up. 
it is very, very, very common not to own a car, right? And you know, nor, nor would anyone drive on Connecticut Avenue if they had the choice not to, because it's just <laughs> a terribly unpleasant experience. Um, but it's 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 sort of hardwired into the way that people tend to you know live their daily lives in a way that it's frankly not here. I mean, we have a relatively sort of newer fixed guideway transit system in the Denver area that you know candidly doesn't get the same kind of heavy use um, that a lot of the sort of legacy transit cities do. And, you know, that's a very hard thing to change. And it's hard in part because the way that people build communities and live in the way that the transit system sort of built around those communities is not quite as organic as it is in some other places, right? You know, there are rapidly densifying neighborhoods here that are not easily connected to the mainline transit corridors. And, you know, we're going to have to think creatively about how you get people to those transit access points in an efficient way if you want them to use it, right? Like the, the neighborhood I live in is a neighborhood where there's a tremendous amount of development going on. Frankly, a lot of it, coastal transplants who would use transit if it were easy, but it's not. Telling people to wait a half an hour for the bus that will get them to the light rail that will get them to downtown in twice the amount of time it takes them to drive their car isn't going to work, right? I mean, people who have choices, you know, do an implicit value of time calculation when they choose where they're going. And even for people you know, who are deeply committed to taking transit as kind of a worldview probably aren't going to do it if it isn't easy. So thinking through how we make it easy for people to have more choices, you know, using a variety of different tools, whether it's the sort of traditional ones or not, and, you know, frankly, doing some things just because they're the thing we can do easily now, I think is going to be important. Just to give you an example, you know, we're talking with um, one of the authorities that we have is the state transportation department has to approve access to the interstate, right? So if there's a development that's looking towards expansion onto the interstate with an you know interchange or an access ramp, you know they need an approval from us. So we've been working through a policy for how we think about demand management when we approve these, and you know we just did sort of an interesting pilot case with a quite large development um, in one of our rapidly growing areas. It is being built. Know, about four miles from the sort of mainline transit artery. And, you know, one of the things we worked with them on, and we ended up helping to fund it, is that, you know, as a condition of that approval, you know, there has to be a um, sort of transit connector to make it really easy for people in that new development to get to the A-line, which is the fixed skyway transit route. Is that the perfect solution? Probably not, right? In an ideal world, would all that development be happening right around the transit station? Sure, but it's not. So, you know, figuring out how in a world where you have some developments that are transit oriented and some that are not, you connect people in. If that means shuttles, that means shuttles is just something we have to, I think, be realistic about and work with people where they're at instead of instead instead of doing what would be sort of the perfect in the absence of reality. Shoshana, the way I'd like to wrap up this uh, interview is getting your advice for other state DOTs that are looking to do things similar to what Colorado has been doing. What would you tell them as they're trying to advance their own clean transportation needs? Great question. Um, I think there's a few things that I would point to. You know, one is being kind of strategic about how you expand the historical scope of the department. You know, for, for myself and all of my counterparts in the country, the departments were structured around the interstate system, right? I mean, they're really like the bureaucracies themselves are kind of creatures of the, you know, 19, 1956 and surrounds. And, you know, it does mean that in order to be able to accommodate these changes that are happening, you know, you need some different institutional infrastructure, um, and, and, you know, I, I'm a big believer that that doesn't mean you hire one person in the director's office and call them the 
you know, the, the, the expert on innovation, right? You know, you really need to think about how you build into the agency the capability to think about this in the way that we do best, which is as implementers. So, you know, we, we've established a unit that we call the Office of Innovative Mobility, which is a, you know, line office in the organization um, that integrates with the folks who are our field people who actually build the project. I think bringing the kind of traditional capabilities and core competencies of DOTs into these conversations is incredibly important, right? And, you know, some of what that means to a point I made earlier is, you know, you have to work with the people who are the legacy experts, not just the people who are coming in saying, you know, they do the new thing, right? Because what makes DOTs, you know, highly functional is that they can build things, right? You know, they can execute, they can take something from an idea and, you know, put a shovel on the ground and make it happen. And you know, that, that's a real asset in a world where things are rapidly changing. But if you sort of discount the people who know how to build things from the conversation because they're not the ones who are the first adopters on the ideas, you're missing a lot of the ability to execute. You know, I've had similar conversations with other states, sort of hearing how the highway people become involved in these conversations about you know, electric vehicle infrastructure. I, I, I know Utah's DOT has taken on a role in that because like we're the departments that know how to do it, do things. And, you know, being able to sort of marshal the action-oriented capabilities of a DOT takes meeting people where they're at, but also helping them to be part of the conversations about the things that are changing. Well, we've been talking on this episode of the Ashto ETAP podcast with Shoshana Liu. She is the executive director of the Colorado Department of Transportation. Shoshana, thanks so much for being a part of our podcast. Thanks for having me.